Hello, and welcome back, listeners. It's time once again for Maya, my yoga audio. I'm your host, Megan Morgan, and today we've got another fantastic guest to speak with today. I'm so excited to introduce her, but before I do that, I wanted to give you two really quick updates. One is that I've created a YouTube channel, just did that today. I've been getting some requests from guests who've been on the show who want to share it and talk more about what I'm doing, and they're like, what's your YouTube channel? And they've been shocked to discover that I don't have one, so... It's coming. I literally just created the page this morning. So stay tuned on social media and on the website, myyogaaudio.com. I will be announcing more about that soon. And then the second thing I wanted to let you all know about is coming up on Sunday, May the 23rd. If you're a local, if you're a Northern California or Sacramento local, I'm doing an event in the park with my friend Riva that yoga is a big part of that. We're going to be doing some sound bowls and we're going to have a special guest talking about women's cycles of life. So that's on Sunday, May the 23rd. I'll be posting about all of that on Instagram as well as on the website. So check that out. We're partnering with Athleta for a giveaway. So lots of of exciting things to come if you're local. So now that we have those things out of the way today, I am so excited to have local teacher, friend, guest, and overall beautiful person, Corey Chadwick, onto the show. Corey and I met about seven years ago now in a local yoga studio here in Sacramento. And Corey is so much, but she is officially on her bio, a social justice advocate And she's committed to raising consciousness around ways that one's own power and privilege can be used for good. She works as a mental health therapist in the education system and is dedicated to empowering youth through self-awareness. Corey is a Lululemon ambassador, and she's taught vinyasa yoga within the Sacramento community for over a decade. And she believes in the power of recognizing and healing our own trauma so that we may be of maximum service to others. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored, truly honored to be here. I know we've been trying to do this for for a while now, pre-pandemic, and then everything has like gotten in the way, but it's, you know, all the good things happen in time. And so now is the right time to have you on here and it feels perfect. It's so true. I was thinking when we sort of were connecting beforehand about what we might talk about and how this might unfold, I thought it happened in divine timing because the way things were a year ago, like I was in such a different place. And so some of the questions, I think this is the right time to talk about them. So all in divine timing. Right. I feel so lucky that I know we haven't spent a ton of time together, especially over the last year because of the pandemic, but I was counting back and I was like, right after I moved to Sacramento, which is about, it'll be seven years ago this fall is when I first met you in class as a teacher. And like everybody else fell in love with you and (laughs) the style that you teach and you as a person. And then there was a, a period of time, what was that, two years ago, three years ago, where we taught in the same yoga studio together, which was so exciting. And I wanted to kind of start our conversation off by asking you, what does yoga mean to you? Maybe I'll add in the word now, because I feel Mm -hmm. like it's changed and you feel free to explore the arc. But just tell us a bit about your yoga journey and what it looks like in your life right now, both in terms of your practice and your teaching. 
All right. So we're just diving right in. (laughs) (laughs) Question one. Just a little one. (laughs) So it's interesting as you were reading my bio, it's there's a part of me that has this internal cringe that it's still in my bio that I've taught uh, vinyasa yoga in Sacramento for over a decade because this is the first time in that span of time that I'm not teaching at all. And that feels so strange to me. You know, I've been teaching for such a long time. It's been such a part of who I am. And and with teaching came practicing. You know, my practice changed a bit after my daughter was born almost nine years ago. You know, I wasn't as free to explore my practices often. So I had to be more thoughtful about getting my practices in. But I just feel like this is a new place for me to be in where I'm not teaching and trying to figure out. And COVID was really sort of the result of that. I also work full time and I have two kids. So teaching was always the cherry on top of my life. I never wanted it to feel like work. And I always wanted to show up joyful to be there to teach because it filled me up so much. And so when COVID happened, well, first I had to scale back a bit because I was juggling life and work and soccer practices and all of that. So I went down to teaching a single, just one class a week, and then COVID hit and it was all on Zoom. And that was a point of real deep reflection for me that it it felt it didn't feel right for me. And I never wanted to continue teaching where it felt like something that I was showing up to phone in. I mean, there are always going to be those classes as teachers where you're just mentally, you know, you are phoning it in, but just generally, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, how did I get through that last 75, 60 minute, whatever it is, you know, like, wow. And inevitably somebody comes up and they're like, thank you so much. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you like that. <laughs> But during COVID and teaching online and virtually, and it was really a hard decision for me because I knew that there were a lot of people that was their lifeline and they needed it. And so I didn't want to turn my back on people. But at the same time, I also just, it was, I felt like I was trying to fit a square block in a circle hole and really trying to work to make that happen. And I never, ever wanted teaching to feel that way. So here I am and not teaching And just really trying to reconcile the fact that I can still be practicing yoga and not teaching it. I can still be practicing yoga and not necessarily show up on my mat, that there are many other aspects of yoga other than yoga asana. And I kind of touched on this a little bit. I almost feel like I'm, I'm talking so much here, but this is, I'll finish out this thought with this thought that is somewhat of a heavy thought. And that is that I'm trying to figure out right now what my relationship to and with yoga is. And I say that because I was part of a community, the community in which we met for the majority of the time that I was practicing yoga. And there were so many beautiful moments in that experience. There were so many beautiful years in that experience, not just moments, very life-changing, very profound, very impactful. And there were also some really harmful things that came out of that experience as well. And there are things in which I am regretful for as a teacher. There were some things that I participated in that don't feel good that you know I'm trying to work through and figure out where I owe an amends. And sometimes it's just a living amends to do better. But I feel in some ways, 
and this is me just riffing, but I feel let down a bit by yoga, or I feel maybe disillusioned or even mistrusting of yoga and what I thought yoga was. And then I, I, you know, in some ways, I know that all of those really beautiful moments and years and experiences were very real. And I don't dismiss those things. But I also feel like I pulled back a curtain to see what was also there that was not great. And, you know, and also within this past year with COVID to see in many ways, the yoga and wellness community has responded to this pandemic and it being very differently aligned with my own values and responses to COVID and the pandemic. I'm just trying to figure out how I want to be in relationship with yoga and what yoga even really is, because it feels so different from what I thought that it was. So I guess I'm just like, there's a big question mark there. I have like a bit of an aversion right now. In fact, I was joking with a friend of mine about a Peloton, right? <laughs> Love my Peloton. Like it's helped me get through COVID. And one of the teachers, Chelsea Jackson Roberts, is a friend and a teacher of mine, and I adore her. But I find myself having such an aversion to taking the yoga classes on Peloton, even though there are so many beautiful teachers that I love. But I will take so many stretching classes. My stretching classes are like a 100. You know, I've taken a 100 <laughs> of them. My yoga classes are less than 10. And it just and here's the thing. When I do the stretching classes, it is yoga. It feels just like yoga, but it feels safer for me and less complicated for me to take a stretching class over a yoga class because I think I'm just still trying to figure out my relationship to and with yoga. So long-winded. But it's such an honest reflection that I think so many of us have had, especially over this past year, just before, I mean, about six months before the pandemic is when I pulled back from teaching. It was due to other reasons. It was, you know, personal family stuff that was going on. I just needed to devote that time towards that. And so it was like, something has to give. I also work full time. But in doing that, it was like, yeah, there's, I felt this sense of, I want to say obligation because I really loved students and I loved people who came to the class. There's something very authentic about that, but also, and another friend actually that you know as well, explained it's the container. What is the container that you are practicing yoga in, right? So whether it's a physical space, whether it's leadership, whether it's, you know, a community at large, what does it mean to be in community? And then the pandemic hit and it was, it forced everybody to not teach really, unless they were doing it virtually. And I really struggled with that. I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I had students emailing me saying, when are you going to go on YouTube or when are you going to go on Zoom or whatever? And I was like, I I just can't do it. And that's how this podcast was born. Because I had this dream about, I just want to listen to someone's voice in my head, just carefully, kindly telling me what to do. And I don't have to look at another computer screen or do it. That was just my solution. This is what I want. So I'm going to just create it because I feel like somebody else might want it too. And then over the past, you know, the course of the last year or so, I've talked to many teachers, you know, who are friends, but even some of the ones that trained me, I was trained in Toronto about 10 years ago now, 12, I'm losing track of time and really amazing teachers who've been, we've been messaging and on WhatsApp and they're just like, I'm barely doing yoga anymore. I'm doing yoga in other ways. I'm, you know, looking at the other seven limbs of yoga instead of just the physical practice to figure out what this means now when you're not 
with a mic in front of a class or, you know, whatever that used to look like for you. So bless you for bringing that to light. I know you're not alone. And I don't know if that (laughs) helps at all to hear from that. But I've heard from many, many teachers that they're kind of going through a similar struggle. So I guess the segue to my next question, you set that up perfectly is what is the maybe not the biggest lessons or one of the biggest lessons that yoga has taught you about yourself and perhaps others too. Maybe you've already answered that. I don't know if you want to expand on anything. They say we teach the thing that we need to hear the most, I've heard. And so Mm -hmm. I think the theme that was most prevalent while I was still teaching and that really shows up for me now is this idea, really the essence of yoga, the translation, is to bring together in union. And for me, that is being able to hold two truths at the same time and sit with that, even if it's uncomfortable. And so it goes back to what I shared is that I can say that those years of my life, particularly, you know, I'm when I say that I'm referencing the studio where I taught and practiced exclusively for so many years were some of the most magical, beautiful, life-changing, profound years of my life. And so I can hold that and I can also mm-hmm. hold this truth that it was problematic in many ways and that both things can be true and that that really is life. Like, can we hold the humanity of others? And that one has been a real struggle for me in all of this because it's easy to point out, you know, like, oh, right. so-and-so is doing this or is not doing this. And in the midst of the pandemic, how selfish is very easy to want to go towards blame. Mm-hmm. So working on holding the humanity of others and my own humanity at the same time that, you know, it's okay for me to feel betrayed. It's okay for me to feel confused. It's okay for me to feel resistance or like to not be on my mat right now. Cause you know, there's a part of me that's like, you've committed to this and and here you are not showing up even when it gets tough. And so I think just being able to hold my main teaching in yoga that I hold most dear to my heart is this idea that we can hold both of those things. And that really, that is what creates that union. That is what creates the wholeness is being able to hold that things can be difficult and challenging and uncomfortable and, you know, also beautiful at the same time. Exactly. It makes me laugh, actually, because that's what happens, right? When, you know, we're recording this podcast, everything's going great. And then all of a sudden, this thing butts into my head. And it's like, okay, so the yoga right now is just figuring out how to keep going without letting this thing totally derail me. And I wanted to go back to the point you mentioned about disappointment in yoga. And it's funny, in the conversations I've been having with other guests and other teachers and other friends recently, and some people who've never done yoga or maybe did it once and hated it, and were just like, I don't get it. Like we're sold, and they've used those words, we've sold this image online. Like, oh, if you do yoga or meditation, your life will be perfect. You'll wake up blissful. There's friends of mine who've told me, don't you wake up every morning and you do this meditation and this practice, and that's why you're always in this good mood. And I was like, please ask my family. I am not always in a good mood. And I certainly don't have as consistent of a practice as I would like to have, right? It's like this ideal that we're all working towards. But even doing that, even if I did that every single day, it wouldn't guarantee me a perfect life free from conflict or interruption or challenge, you know, and but I think there's this perception out there that somehow 
if you do yoga or practice yoga, your life will become more like that. And in my perspective, it's just like, no, kind of our lives are the practice of yoga over and over and over again. And I keep learning some of the same lessons in different ways until, you know, I figure out how to evolve and stop experiencing that challenge. So thank you for speaking to the truth of that too, because I know you're always working hard and I was telling you and, you know, in our preambles to this, that I've always seen you as a air quotes, woke woman doing the work that we all need to engage in when it comes to equity, diversity, and inclusion. So you spoke directly to your Sacramento community about privilege at Creative Mornings. No, it was two years ago now, the pandemic year just wipes everything out. To teaching yoga at the White House under the Obama administration. I still remember you going and doing that with Jessica Micheletti and my jaw was on the floor and meeting Michelle Obama and then doing a workshop. And I think it was with Rachel Cargill, if I'm remembering that correctly. So can you just talk about those things and what it was like for the fangirl part of us? That's how did you get to this place and what was that like? And even though it was work, you know, there's that glamour part of it that we all want to hear about it too. But then also taking it back to the roots of who you are and who I know you are. The first time you noticed inequality, like in your life, maybe it was even as a kid. And what was the first thing you noticed and you said or you, or you did about that? So again, I know it's a very large question, but however you want to approach that. Meeting Michelle Obama is hands down. I mean, I, I work with middle school and high school students and it recently came up and one of the teachers I work with is like, well, you know, Miss Corey met Michelle Obama and the students were like, oh, you know, and so I was like, oh, this is, I always get to use this as my cool card. Like, But did you know that I, everything you would expect her to be, she was. And then some, but one of the things that stood out the most to me in my time with her was we were in the White House. They had a particular meeting room where we were meeting with her and they took all of our cell phones, you know, we couldn't, and they were going to send us the photo later, but we walk into the room and, you know, there were about six of us yogis that walked in we were doing the Easter egg roll event. And it was, I think I went maybe six of the eight years that we were invited. I had newborns a couple of years. And so I, I didn't attend those years, but the other years I did. I want to give a shout out to Leah Cullis, who was responsible for bringing us on board there. But we walk into the room and she goes to greet us and we're like, I almost felt like I should curtsy or I don't know, like (laughs) bow or, but I went to shake her hand and she's like, Oh, you know, we don't do that here. And she reached in, she gave me a big hug. And so like, that just is, yeah. So that will forever be one of the greatest moments in my life. I attended a Rachel Cargill workshop years ago and was able to meet with her and connect that way. So I wish I could say I was collaborating with her, but I was learning from her. It was a feminism tour, maybe like problematic white feminism. And so she came Mm. out to the West Coast. She's from the East Coast. She came out to San Francisco. So I went with a couple of friends and learned from her there. And but yeah, that was such an honor. And I can't remember what the other... Oh, Creative Mornings. Oh, Creative Mornings. What an honor to be in a room full of people, many of them that I know and love, and to be with local people and to just be there with people who were really receptive. You know, it's a a prickly conversation to talk about race and racism and privilege, especially to a room full of white people who hold much of uh, predominantly white people, I should say, that hold so much of that power and privilege and to really kind of poke and encourage people to think more deeply about it. And people were so receptive, which was wonderful. So for that, I'm, I'm super grateful. 
being in the audience that day. And I didn't read any of what was coming up. I just always go to creative mornings. I hope they become live again soon when it's safe. And I was like, of course I'm going and a double, of course, going because it's Corey. So I didn't even know the topic. So when you started speaking, I was like, again, jaw was on the floor, but I was like, there's no, there's no other person I could think of right now who would be able to deliver this in the way that she does and the way that people will listen because there's already so much admiration and respect for you as a person, as a mom, as a teacher, as a community member, you know, as somebody who does the work. It was just beautiful. Thank you so much for that. And I think one of the things you talked about jogging my memory, I think you did talk about childhood stories and childhood friends who were in the audience to kind of bring us back to when was the first time you noticed? I know because I asked you like six questions. First time you noticed inequality and yeah, what you noticed or what you said and did about it that has spurred this you know lifelong work you're doing. You know, I think my mom, I owe so much to her. I can remember when we were young and my mom is a school social worker. I'm a school therapist, mental health therapist. So the apple didn't fall far from the tree. And so my mom has always been a seeker of justice and truth. And she's just kind of got that's in her constitution. So we were raised that way. But when we were really young, I remember my mom had a friend who had contracted HIV and that was in the eighties, you know, and that was when we didn't really know a whole lot, but my mom was working at the time in drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers. And so one of the people that she befriended and got to know contracted HIV. And so he at one point was homeless. And so my mom brought him in and let him until he got a place crash on our couch for a handful of weeks. And that was the era of Ryan White. I don't know if you recall, like he was a young boy from, I believe, Indiana, Indianapolis or Kokomo, Indiana, who was about my age at the time in the 80s, maybe a little bit older than I was. And he contracted HIV AIDS through a blood transfusion. He was a hemophiliac. And so as a kid, we were watching. My mom made sure to teach us about him and to talk about these injustices. He was parents banded together to go to the school board to ensure that he couldn't attend school because they were afraid that he was going to pass it along. And so I think that simple act was so huge. And then the other thing that comes to mind, I'll just quickly add to that, is when I was in second grade, my best friend was deaf. And so out of nowhere, we just became friends. We met through church in a youth group. I learned sign language and, you know, we became close friends and she went to, at the time, they didn't have inclusion education for deaf students. They went to a school in the district that was specifically for deaf students. And so we, you know, as seven-year-olds, we were like, I want you to go to the neighborhood school right around the corner from us. I want you to, let's go together. And so we fought and we pushed for her to be able to have an interpreter in the classroom. By third grade, my teacher, who I'm still very good friends with, she's actually retiring this year. I was her first year of teaching. She's retiring this year. My third grade teacher, she gave me a platform and said, I want you to prepare the students in class for, her name was Melissa, my best friend, to come into our classroom. So I taught them the alphabet and sign language. I taught them some really simple sign to prepare her for the transition. So she came to third grade, you know, midway through the year. So I think that just those little things, just the desire to not just embrace, but go a step further to advocate for. And I think the takeaway from that is that when people are close up, when we are in proximity to 
anyone, you know, someone with HIV, somebody who is deaf or somebody who is black or somebody who is a person of color or has a disability, when we are in proximity and close up, like you realize you don't have a choice but to advocate for, you know, because they are your people. They are when you're in community with those people, not those people, when you're in community with someone who has XYZ lived experience, you realize that their freedom is your freedom as well. You know, they go hand in hand. Yeah. It's one of the things that I say every time like a challenge comes up in my life or someone that I know, it's like, oh, I never knew about that before, or I didn't know about that experience. And like you said, whether it's from dis-ease or ability or, you know, anything that's like a barrier, it's like all of a sudden you become so passionate about that because it's like this new thing. But to that person, that's been their their whole life. And until it affects everyone, until everybody realizes how much it affects every single person, not just those that it affects, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then that's where the advocacy comes in. You've phrased that brilliantly. Thank you. Thank you for that. I wanted to kind of switch gears a little bit now because this was something that really drew me to reach out to you. You wrote a blog post about four years ago now, and I should say it's littlenectar.com, right? If that is your, mm-hmm. your yeah, website. Yeah, and, that's my yeah. website. Yeah. And where her blog posts are. Yeah. So everybody who's listening, it's exactly how it sounds, little L-I-T-T-L-E and nectar, N-E-C-T-A-R. So Corey wrote a blog post four years ago called On Sobriety. It totally cracked me open. I was just sitting on my couch and like I could barely read it through my tears. And you may or may not remember me reaching out to you because of the impact. I think it was at Creative Mornings. And so like anyone, I'm personally continuing to navigate my own relationship with alcohol. But that post was a huge wake up call for me. Like I felt something in my heart and my gut that was so honest about your experience and, and really relatable. There's a lot of people that make fun of that word (laughs) these days, but it was very relatable. And I want people to go to your website and read the post. It's not actually that long. It's just very powerful. But I also wondered if today you would give listeners a bit of a rundown of what prompted you to share your sobriety story. And at that time, I don't know if there's anything at that time that kind of triggered you to want to say, now is the time I want to talk about this, even though you'd been sober for nearly a decade at that point. So many good questions. I think I shared with you as we like, you know, chatted leading up to this, that you chose everything that really feels like it is an important part of who I am. Like every topic that you were inviting for discussion feels so true to all of who I am. So yes, you're right. I was sober for almost a decade or maybe over a decade at the point that I wrote that. And with close family and friends, not even close family and friends, with family and friends and even acquaintances, even coworkers, I was always open that I didn't drink and that even that I was sober. But publicly sharing, I knew in instances, especially teaching yoga in Sacramento, I was dialed into a lot of people that I had a platform. And I was always a bit reluctant because I think I had this sort of unspoken fear or maybe subconscious fear that it would haunt or impact my professional life. And why? I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I, if anything, I think it would be the opposite. It would be quite commendable. But I also think that it speaks to the insidiousness of the way in which mental illness and drug and alcohol abuse and addiction are still taboo topics of conversation in our culture. 
You know, it's like my heart knew, but my head was in conflict with what my heart knew. And so I just had this, I'll never forget. I was in the shower one day where I do a lot of like, where I get a lot of my downloads or my my commute to work. It's like, I got to jump out of the shower and get on my notes and just put these thoughts out, you know? So it's either in the shower or my drive to work where these things come to me and these sparks for creativity or for whatever it might be. And it was like, you have to tell your story because I think that one of the gifts in my own life is that both of my parents experienced drug and alcohol addiction and both of them were in recovery and my dad before he died and, you know, my mom off and on throughout her life and, you know, is presently in recovery. And so I had the gift of somebody letting me know that it was not unusual. I was born into knowing that it was not taboo and that it was not like, you know, this, we don't talk about, like I was brought up with a vernacular to know what it meant to black out and that that wasn't normal and to know where I could go if I needed to get sober and wanted to get sober and to know that I could share some of these innermost secrets with someone and they would know what I was talking about. So I realized what a gift that was that I had that in my family. And at the time when I got sober, my younger brother, two years younger than I am, was just newly sober himself. He was four days sober. Four days later, I got sober. And so when I was you know, really drunk one night, I called my brother and I'm like, I have a problem. And he's like, no, I know you do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Going back to your question, like what brought me to the point of deciding that it would be something worth sharing was just thinking, you know, I know, like, I feel like my story was not super exciting. I'm using air quotes mm-hmm. strongly here in terms of like, I didn't have a DUI. I hadn't, you know, gone down a huge spiral. I didn't have any insane benders or anything like that, but that didn't mean that I didn't still have a problem and that other people might be able to see their own journey differently or through sharing my own experience. Yeah. I think that's probably precisely why it impacted me so much because it wasn't a big dramatic story, but one that so many of us, I feel like almost every single person could relate to. And it was the humanity of that. And I'll never forget, you said to me, because I started to cry and I was like, but I don't have like this issue and I've never driven after I've driven or whatever. And you're like, yes, but just acknowledging that gives you so much compassion for people who do. Like you Mm -hmm. can understand how someone could get to that point, right? By being at the point that you're in now. And I will never forget that because it was 100% true. All of a sudden that completely changed my, you know, my mother was killed when I was an infant by a drunk driver. And so that's one of those things that I'm like, you know, it's kind of always like a little bit there on the surface. And I was like, no, it brought me to a realization place. It became part of my book actually to figure that out and to like figure out who this person was and to be able to forgive them and let that go and find out more about their story as much as as I could. So that's a huge gift, Corey, that you shared that. Thank you with us. Mm. I encourage everybody, not just that story, all of Corey's blog posts are on point and they're they're not super long, but they really make you think. So I want to encourage you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I have chills. I I was showing you like (laughs) just hearing you and, you know, just the humanity of it all. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just, yeah, so touching. We are all so 
perfectly flawed, <laughs> you know, in our own ways. And and the more we realize that, I think about ourselves and we can see it in others. And instead of it just being the criticism and like, it's so easy to point that finger of blame, but also find more compassion for everyone and everything. And you've touched on my next question in terms of mental health, because you've already talked a little bit about increasing awareness and what drove you to share the post on sobriety. I mean, maybe we have the answer to that question. I was going to ask you what drew you towards this work and how have you seen it change over time? I feel like your mom probably already, like how you were raised has definitely affected your outlook on life. But what else would you say about that? I think that when we each find our individual voice and and courage to share our experience, we realize how much more we have in common with other people than not. And I think that, you know, mental illness and alcoholism and addiction are those things that we feel like we don't have permission culturally, even though sometimes I think we think we have more permission than we do. Like we're not quite there yet or maybe you know, big picture, I think in pockets, we have that permission and it's okay. But I do still think there is so much implicit bias that we carry around, even as myself, who is someone who is such an advocate for being able to talk about it so we can break the stigma. But I think it's just so ingrained, you know, and I think there's an element, it all sort of, this is, these are my worlds sort of overlapping, but I think one of the tenets of white supremacy culture that is ingrained in so many of us is this idea of perfection and the need for perfectionism. And when we say we have mental illness, it's like, there's this tug, internal tug of like, I want to say it because I want to break that stigma. But the moment that I put it out there, will I be seen differently? Will I be seen as someone who is not capable of holding the job that I have, or will be seen as someone who could potentially, you know, crumble at any moment. So it is really difficult. But I do think, I think very similar to doing anti-racism work, I always see it as each of us with our own chisel at the marble wall, and we're just chipping away, you know, we're just slowly and the analogy I use is our little chips turn into cracks, and those cracks meet up with other folks who are doing the work to create fissures. And then those fissures meet this convergence of people doing it and they become chasms. And that's when you have civil rights movements and Me Too, and you have a lot of movement in regards to legislation around mental health and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, the breakthroughs. I kept waiting. I was like, yeah, when all those things, that's a beautiful visual, actually, because it's, it's the work, you know, when you think of like the grand art pieces of the world that took an artist years or decades to, you know, it didn't just happen overnight. It was a laborious process. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Chipping away. That's making me reflect back on a post that you made earlier this year. And your timeline on, on Instagram is so beautiful. Like the thing that I love too about being connected with you is yes, you have like a lovely aesthetically pleasing feed, but like each post has so much power and meaning behind it, you know, for the people that take the time to read that. And so there was one post you talked about that even though your children are, quote, white passing, that they have Indigenous Native American and Polynesian heritage. And the challenge to you and to your husband as a parent to raise them in the kind of world and society that we live in. And I wondered if you would speak more on that, especially after the tumultuous year we've had and how things shift as they get older and, you know, can accommodate more conversations. And then as you continue to learn and evolve, I just 
not, I don't just feel, I know that there are parents that listen to the show who have blended in families ethnically of all backgrounds. I feel like this would be a really important topic to hear from you from somebody who is skilled, not only at doing this work, but investigating their own selves and also like being like, Hey, I'm a parent. I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing sometimes, but here's what I'm experiencing. Like, I feel like you may have some words that people could grasp onto to just help get them to the next step of where they, they may need to go. Oh boy. Well, I want to start by saying that, you know, I may have used it. I don't recall if I used the term white passing, but really we are white, you know, my husband, my, me, my children, I, I want to use, I want to start there. We are okay. definitely white and okay. also I guess white passing, but I guess there are parts of us, you know, my, so, oh gosh, where to even begin? This is so big and so rich and so real for me right now, exploring this. So I guess in that sense, because I say that we're white, even though we have this beautiful mixture of heritage on both sides of our family that I'll talk about in a moment, but I say that we're white because to the world, we are white Mm -hmm. and we are white benefiting. You know, we walk through the world with, you know, we are white and we are also receiving all the benefits. And yes, there is this mixture of heritage, but I just want to throw that out there because I don't want to misrepresent myself or my family. So I need to go back and and look at how I phrase that. So years ago, so my grandmother is from Tahiti. My dad's mom is from Tahiti, born and raised. And my great grandfather, so my grandmother's father was European. And he came to the United States, was educated in the United States. I believe he attended both Harvard and Stanford, came from a family with money. He was a writer. And he ended up going to Tahiti and French Polynesia to really become inspired to later write some of his works. So my great-grandfather, his name is Charles Nordoff, and he wrote many novels, but one of them being Mutiny on the Bounty. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So here's what's interesting. And I know you'll feel me on this. So that was always kind of, that's like my fun fact, you know, my party trick that I pull out. It's like, (laughs) my great-grandfather is Charles Nordoff, and he wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. And he spent a lot of time in Ojai. And before World War I, Ojai was called Nordoff, which is his last name. The high school there is Nordoff High still. But after the war, because Nordoff is of German descent, they changed the name of the town to Ojai. So like, I was always like, oh, these are my little fun party trick fun facts about me, you know, two truths and a lie, you know, and my <laughs> truth was that my great grandfather was Charles Nordoff. So anyhow, he traveled to French Polynesia. When he got there, he met my great-grandmother and met and married her. And they had, I believe, six kids total. And my grandmother was one of them. And she grew up the majority of her life in Tahiti. Like I have beautiful photos of her at five years old sitting on tortoises on the beach, you know, just some really amazing pictures of the family and the heritage and just her upbringing. But when she was 16 or maybe 17, her father moved the family to the States, to California. And she was really unhappy about that. She was primarily French speaking and, you know, her whole life was uprooted. So I share all of this history to say that I spent so many years of my life talking about my great-grandfather's success and his heritage and spent so much time talking about 
this man who actually colonized, you know, this, this white man from Europe who was like, I have a lot of money and I just want to go explore French Polynesian. I'm going to pick me a wife and you, and then uprooted my grandmother and her siblings from everything that they knew and their relationship with their culture and their Polynesian ancestry and moved them to the States. And then they lost that connection. And I'm only, you know, two generations below that. And I have no connection to that. And so I feel like this is part of my draw in doing this work is like understanding the colonizer because I am part colonizer. That is who I am in my DNA and also part colonized, you know, that I have those ancestors in there who are like, our voices need to be heard as much as Charles Nordoff. Yeah, that's great. But his story and many like his have been told. Now it's time to understand our voice and our story and tell that story too. So mm. very long winded per usual, but oh, you no, know, that's, that's, do you know her yeah. name? Do you know by chance here? Or am I putting you on my, the spot? My, great, oh, my, my great grandmother. It is, I will say, I do know it, but it is extreme. It's very long and it's difficult to pronounce. I will share it with you and maybe in the show notes you can, yeah. or if I'll, yes. For sure. That's yeah. everything you just spoke to, you know, Angie Franklin from Afro yeah. Yoga oh, yeah. by Angie. Of so she, yeah. she was on in December, oh, yeah. January. No, I listened to the, yeah. Uh-huh. That episode. Yeah. And that's one of the things she said at one of her gatherings in the last couple of years was that in her own ethnic heritage, she feels like the colonizer and the colonized. And she's like, I know this, it's like constantly conflating, you know, my family history and reconciling who I am within that by doing this work and learning. And so I love that you picked up on that comes in various shapes and forms and people. And you know what I mean? Like, I guess it's not to make assumptions about who people are, but I also respect that you're saying like, no, we're, st- we're like, we're white. And, <laughs> you know, this is how we move in the world at the same time this is this thing that's also really important that's indigenous that's been erased because of that. So I can certainly appreciate that very much. Thank you for sharing that. I will say too, you touched on my husband and his indigenous culture. My husband is Osage and Cherokee and very similar to his experience, you know, and and we want Mm -hmm. our children to grow up, I guess, speaking as a parent, I'll just share this quickly. We want our children to grow up knowing the truth of who they are and to embrace that and to know that that's who they are. And also that the way that the world sees them is not as that. And so they will have so many benefits and privileges in their lives based on how they look, how the world sees them. And without knowing their story and their background, they will have many benefits as a result of that. So, you know, I always say it's this delicate balance. Like I want, especially with my daughter who will become a woman, I want her to know that as a woman, her voice is important, but also her voice isn't the most important in the room. And that I want her to always be looking around at whose voice is most marginalized and understanding that her role as someone who has this immense amount of privilege is to create space, create seats at the table, create an opportunity to amplify the voices that are least likely to be heard. So it's this delicate balance. I I want her to know, speak up, speak out, be loud, but not too loud, you know, like, (laughs) and I'm working on it myself. So I'm thinking of the event that you had at your home before the pandemic. So it must've been two years ago. I keep saying everything last year, but I feel like it was two years ago. 
I know the kids weren't like explicitly involved in that, but I feel like they were there at least at the beginning or they were maybe inside the house. And to see you invite, I think there was 30 of us or 40 of us over to your home specifically to talk about this and just, you know, seeing these women from all walks of life. And I mean, we were speaking in an open air space about our struggles, about racial identity, about what it means to have privilege, about what it means to not and, you know, navigating those roads. And much like you, I suspect your kids and your daughter especially will pick that up from you because they've lived a life with a parent who who talks about these things. Like it's not something that's swept under the rug or we just ignore it because it doesn't apply to us. So that's that, that I can only pray and hope that that's the case, you know, but parenthood, you know, it's a crapshoot. You just don't know. I hope that those are the values that stick with them. I know. I was telling the, the last guest that I interviewed that I said, there's going to be something that we will all, all of our kids will end up in therapy for someday, despite what we, and I feel like, I've just learned to accept that. Like, it's just going to happen despite all my best intention and that that's okay. Like another part of normalizing that, they're going to need some help to get through things that we couldn't be the balm or the fix for every single thing that they experience as much as we want to be, you know, I don't want them to ever feel pain. We might think we are. Yes. (laughs) Right. The last few questions, and they may interrelate, see how it feels to you. What is something that you have read or watched or experienced recently that really impacted your life? And it can be more than one thing too. Well, I am currently reading a book called We Do This Till We Free Us by Miriam Kaba. And it is really about abolition of the prison industrial complex and law enforcement. And it's really fascinating because I've never quite resonated with being a full-blown abolitionist. And that feels like so extreme to me. But the more I read it, it's just sort of this gathering of essays and pieces that she's written or others have written. And what I realized that I think you'll appreciate this brings it full circle back to yoga is that abolition is is really ahimsa. It is really, she talked about during the trial with Michael Brown's murderer, and I can't think of his name off the top of my head, but Darren Wilson. I think that's who shot him. I can't remember or um, (laughs) I think it is, but you know, whether or not I think they were going to indict him or whatnot. She wrote an essay about this strange place for her that like, she's not excited because to be a true abolitionist is really like also not wanting that for the people that are in law enforcement as well. And like how radical that really is that transformative justice isn't just pick and choose who we want that justice for. It is really for the collective good and that your freedom from the system is my freedom, is your freedom, is our collective freedom. And just how profound that is. Corey, thank you so much. You've given us so much to chew on and think about and and breathe on. I like that you brought it back to ahimsa or nonviolence, which is one of the main tenets of yoga. And I love thinking about that. A previous guest, Michelle Marlihan was on, and that was one of the things that she talked about, I believe it was last fall, last November. And she said, when I think about the limbs of yoga, I think about how I can do the least amount of harm in whatever choices I make and decisions that I have to make. And so I love that you kind of brought that out. We're turning it back to yoga in whatever ways and nonviolent ways that 
we can see and hear and give space for everyone. And I wanted to remind everyone, or actually have you, just so we hear your voice one more time, the best place for people to connect with you online through your website, Instagram, or any events or things you have coming up. Yeah. So you shared it earlier, but littlenectar.com is where I am really not great about posting on there often, but where I put blog related type things. But I typically when uh, Instagram is probably the best way to find me. So it's the same at little nectar. So I'm, I'm usually writing things more frequently there. But sometimes I'll take little bits and pieces and drop them on little nectar. When I remember, I'm not great about that. In fact, I just have to share this real quick. When I've thought often about a podcast and it resonated so much with me when you shared that your podcast was born out of wanting to continue to share with people and for people to be able to hear your voice and connect. And, and I've thought a lot about it, but every, but it's, there's so much work involved. There's so many working parts. And so, you know, just what you did leading up to this whole experience and all of the working parts and the things that you don't see, it's delivered in this really beautiful package. But I bow to you. I'm, I'm so humbled like, and reminded that maybe I'm not quite there yet because there's a lot to it. So maybe one day there will be a podcast, but for now we get to listen to yours. And I think that those are probably the best ways to connect with me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And so everybody knows, I've mentioned him before. I work with Chase at Upstarter Podcasts. And without him, this wouldn't sound <laughs> as good as it does or be as organized or edited as well. Please feel free to check him out as well. That's at upstarterpods.com. And I put links on all the Instagram posts and on my website back to him as well. So I very happily give a referral. He helps keep me organized and guests like you, Corey, help give us wonderful things like feel good things and challenging things as we go through this crazy thing called life. I just make it a little bit easier having conversations with people that, that are friends and family to listeners everywhere. And we're in something like 12 or 13 countries now. It's I haven't given an update in a while. The majority of listeners are in the United States and Canada, but just about everywhere else as well, which blows my wow. mind. So thank you to everybody out there who's listening and sharing. And don't forget, if you're local, Sunday, May 23rd, you can join us in the park for some yoga and sound healing and talking about the moon cycles. And check out the YouTube channel. I'll be starting that up as soon as I can finish working on it. And thank you so much to Corey for taking the time and energy to be here and share her beautiful wisdom and beautiful heart with us. And until next time, listeners, keep tuning in and listening closely and expanding exponentially because it's always a great time for your mind to be on the mat. <music>